Dr. Lenny Menken. Dr. Menken is a practicing internist. He's Associate Program Director of the Internal Medicine Residency at Legacy, uh, among other teaching responsibilities. He earned his medical degree from Dartmouth, uh, returned to his roots in California for Internal Medicine Residency at UCLA, and he also served as Chief Resident um, at UCLA um, and worked there for, for years as Associate Professor before coming to Portland. Uh, Dr. Mankin has many interests in teaching roles within the residency, including evidence-based medicine, outpatient medicine education, and resident wellness. Um, among his academic interests are hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. Uh, many of you know that Dr. Mankin is a sought-after teacher. He speaks on these topics and many others, including at the regional and national level. And outside of work, um, he is quite a guru of trivia. Um, for any of you who have not had the chance to participate in the trivia sessions at the Oregon ACP, it is good times and a great chance to meet some of our colleagues from other institutions as well. So Dr. Mankin, thanks so much for joining us today and I will turn it over to you. Terrific, thank you, Laura. Thank you. You are perfect. We are seeing your slides, but All right. we might be muted yet. No, I haven't spoken yet. Oh, so there good, we go. We're good morning. Ready. I just uh, wanted to get that off my chest, so no disclosures perfect. beyond that. <laughs> even if you're in the audience, just send something in the chat to Laura. And uh, today we're going to go through a little whirlwind. We'll go through a just a typical clinic morning, uh, go through some patients and uh, maybe answer some questions that oftentimes comes up. Uh, so we'll start with uh, our first patient. It's a 44-year-old woman with uh, migraine headaches. She gets a lot of migraines. She has 16 to 20 migraine days per month. She's using a maximum amount of sumatriptan, which uh, is covered by her insurance, which is nine doses per month. And it's affecting her life in a lot of ways, especially as a working mother of young children. So. What are the indications for migraine prophylaxis? It's uh, anyone who has more than four headaches per month or greater than eight headache days per month, people who are having debilitating attacks and uh, possibly having difficulty tolerating the acute medications we use for migraines. So which drugs are first line for prevention of migraines? There are a bunch. We'll start with the first class, which is the antihypertensives. I put a little asterisk here uh, next to the ones that the American Academy of Neurology says are first line because they have rather robust evidence in their favor. And so that tends to be the beta blocker class. The next group are the anti-epileptics, uh, which you can see two star drugs there, topiramate and divalproic acid. Antidepressant medications are sometimes tried. And then finally, there's the neurotoxin uh, uh, I can't pronounce the name. All right, other things out there for migraine prophylaxis, there are herbal medications. Uh, there are several that you can try that have small randomized trials. And then there's a whole bunch of non-pharmacologic methods that also have uh, some merit uh, based on the literature. So question, are there any new therapies out there for migraine prevention? 
I'm seeing a lot of stuff on TV and wondering what am I missing out on? So this is the, the new and exciting molecule these days is called calcitonin gene related peptide, CGRP we'll call it. CGRP modulates pain as well as vasodilation in neurogenic inflammation. So it seems to be a real key player in the uh, uh, migraine pathway. So there are a few new medicines that have come around since 2018 that target this CGRP entity, and they're arenumab, fremenezumab, and galcanezumab. Uh, easy to say. Uh, the medications, unfortunately, are subcutaneous medicines, but the nice part is you administer them every one to three months, so it's not that frequent an application. The CGRP antagonists are kind of nice in a few different ways. You don't need to dose titrate. You basically start them on a medication dose and keep them there. There are no liver or kidney concerns with these medications. They act pretty quickly although sometimes it takes up to three months to see the full effect, and they're com uh, they combine well, they play nicely with other medications for migraine. So how well do they work? A really important question. Let's look at uh, the a few trials that got these uh, drugs their entry into uh, through the FDA. And so uh, for all the trials, they basically had the same types of uh, criteria, so I've combined them here. Uh, so for their inclusion criteria, they said that people had to have somewhere between four to 14 migraine headaches per month for episodic uh, uh, migraine definition and more than 15 to be considered chronic. The patients had to maintain a headache diary as part of their study and they were excluded. And I think this is really important. They were excluded if they had tried and failed more than two migraine prophylactic agents. And so that means that they set the bar pretty low. Uh, these are people who were perhaps uh, naive to migraine prophylaxis medicines or hadn't tried many before. So they really wanted to have high chance of success. In terms of headache diaries, this is just one, I, I don't have any uh, financial interest in anything I'm showing today, but this is one that I tend to use uh, with my patients. It's called the Migraine Buddy. And basically, it allows them to uh, focus on their migraines, uh, enter their history, and so you can get a real accurate count of their migraine headache frequency. So let's look at these studies. In the baseline characteristics, just about all of the participants were women, and that tends to be who suffers most from migraines. Migraine duration on average was about 20 years, and the majority of these uh, uh, people selected were not currently on preventive medicines for migraines. So again, kind of a low bar for something to work. And here are the results of the trials. The first one, arenumab. At baseline, people were having eight migraines per month. And you can see here with placebo, that knocked it down to six and a half. And then it went down further if you were on the active drug uh, at low and high dose. For fremunazumab, uh, more frequent headaches in that study. 13 went down to about 11 with placebo and went down to about eight to nine uh, with the medication. And here we have fremunazumab, nine down to six and a half. And then with active drug, you almost cut it in half. And then galcanazumab, they actually cut the frequency in half. 
Another important uh, outcome that they're measuring nowadays with migraine studies is what percent are achieving achieving a 50% reduction in their migraine days? And you can see here from this uh, table that uh, somewhere around uh, roughly half of people are reducing their migraine uh, frequency by 50%. So uh, pretty important drugs uh, in the sense that they, they are working. Uh, any adverse events, they were pretty rare. They generally didn't differ from placebo and mainly it was just a reaction where you got the injection. So these drugs were well tolerated, so that's really good. Uh, quality of life, disability scores, uh, both improved on these medications, as you might imagine, with less headaches. And if you sum it up, looking at the different studies, use of these CGRP antagonists resulted in about seven to eight fewer headache weeks per uh, year as compared to three to five less uh, headache weeks per year with use of placebo medication. So I, I think overall these are uh, impactful medications. All right, a really important question is how do these CGRP antagonists compare to what we already have out there uh, for prevention of migraines? And so as you might imagine, there are no direct comparisons. Uh, these are new drugs. But in general, if you look at the old stuff, most people experienced a 50 to 75% reduction in migrate, migraine frequencies with use of the majority of traditional agents. Um, but sometimes the side effects were limiting. Here is a, this is not meant to be uh, all inclusive, but this is a pretty uh, fair summary of a bunch of the drugs that we've used for migraine prophylaxis traditionally. And you can see there that with active drug, uh, roughly half of people are uh, reducing their migraine uh, days by half. And so not dissimilar to these newer agents. Uh, how about acute migraines? Let's shift gears a little bit. Are there any new therapies out there for acute migraine? And the answer is yes, there are. There are two new uh, classes of drugs. They're called the GAPANTS. Uh, I don't make these up, folks. They just uh, come at me. So the FDA approved two drugs, Ubrogapant and Rimegapant, uh, which are both CGRP receptor antagonists. And then there's a new class of drug out there uh, targeting serotonin, uh, 1F uh, uh, receptors called the DITANS. And so I have a hard time remembering uh, names and classes of drugs. And so I want to put an image into your head. So these are the GAPANTS uh, from somebody working at GE. And then these uh, are different DITANS uh, from the different years. And so you can remember the GAPANTS and the DITANS. Hopefully it's not too soon for you folks. All right, <clears throat> so how do these things work for migraine? Uh, so this is a, a table looking at <clears throat> relief from migraine pain at two hours from the onset of the headache. You can see with placebo, people are getting about just above 10% and they're hitting about 20% with active drug and about the same thing with the, the Rimegapant. So uh, better than placebo, but still only one in five people getting headache relief at two hours. Adverse effects from the Gapant drugs were generally mild uh, and not that common. Uh, and you can see them there. And there was no signal that if you use these that there were medication overuse headaches occurring. 
The ditans, these are the highly selective uh, serotonin receptor agonists. They block trigeminal nociception. And unlike tryptin drugs, they don't cause vasoconstriction. Tryptins, we sometimes limit their use if people have had strokes or uh, have cardiovascular risks, and these drugs may be safer. So these are again for acute migraine, and you can see here that uh, in uh, the placebo, people were getting about 15 to 20% reduction or, or uh, relief from pain, and about uh, 30 to up to 40% of people were getting relief of their migraine with these ditan drugs. Lismitidan is the only one in this class thus far. All right, adverse effects from these drugs were actually mild to moderate. Um, a lot of people getting dizziness from these medications. There was a real warning flag that people were having impaired driving on these medications. And I thought this was funny, inability to assess one's driving competence, um, which seems like uh, a weird thing to uh, be able to study, but yep. So people were bad drivers and didn't know it. And then uh, otherwise there were no uh, signals in the cardiovascular world, which was uh, good. All right, so how do these drugs fare in comparison with what we have already out there for treatment of acute migraine? And I would argue, although there's no direct comparisons, uh, these newer short acting drugs are far inferior when you look at studies of what's already out there. The triptans are quite impressive in their ability to get someone free from migraine pain at two hours, up to 60%. And then uh, comparing it with just simple aspirin or ibuprofen, you're getting about equivalence. All right, uh, this was, I, I promised I didn't have any uh, financial interest in anything, but this was uh, one of the medicines that I saw advertised uh, in one of the in one of the journals I was reading. So find uh, uh, more moments with less migraine with this was a drug called Costalot. Uh, it's indecimab injections. Uh, so you'll be seeing probably more of that one. And then this was yet another one that was in uh, the journal, uh, which was Expensivo, uh, which is Robzublindimab. So uh, yeah, let's talk about the cost of these medications. Uh, here's the ridiculous monthly cost for all of these new medications. Uh, and then let's compare that with what we have out there already, the traditional migraine medications. And you can see that there is a world of difference here in costs. All right, so pitfalls of these newer migraine agents. We don't know their efficacy compared to traditional migraine therapies. We don't have long-term safety data on them, but there haven't been any worrisome signals. And then I think the, the biggest detractor at this point is the cost. So my clinical bottom line, the CGRP inhibitors and the ditans are two new classes of medications that may successfully reduce migraine burden. And uh, we should be looking out for those in the future, but probably too expensive right now for prime time for most patients. So in addition to lifestyle interventions, go with the traditional agents first line. Beautiful Oregon coast. That takes us to our second patient. This is a 32-year-old woman with a history of migraine headaches, I again, who comes in to meet you as a new patient after her move from Colorado. She asks you to approve medical marijuana for migraine prophylaxis. Of course she does. So 
marijuana, as you're uh, probably aware, is increasing in use, and uh, it's now uh, legal to some uh, degree. And uh, last I checked, about 45 out of the 50 states, uh, and about a quarter of medical marijuana is being prescribed for migraine headaches. This was a a map from something, uh, some website. It was something like gettinghigh.com or whatever. Uh, but this was the most current legalization status that I can find for migraines. So the question, does marijuana help patients with chronic migraine? We're lacking very many, we're, we're lacking in studies on marijuana, quite truthfully. And so here's the only good study, or, or I shouldn't even say good, here's the only uh, reputable study I could find on uh, marijuana prevention of migraines. They looked at 121 patients who suffered migraines and who were advised to try medical marijuana, either in form of vaping, edible marijuana, or smoking marijuana, uh, to try for marijuana uh, for migraine pro, uh, prevention. Uh, two thirds of them were uh, current or former marijuana users when they were recommended to try this. And they looked at the outcome of change in monthly migraine frequency and they followed these patients over a course of 22 months. And what they found was that 85% of participants reported decrease in their migraine frequency with use of marijuana. Monthly migraine headache frequency decreased from about 10 to uh, uh, less than half of that. And the only real adverse events being reported were people having trouble controlling uh, the effects from their edibles. Uh, often citing that it was too strong, too powerful. Clinical bottom line, marijuana use is rapidly expanding. There isn't a whole lot of data out there, but uh, uh, further studies are clearly needed to define the role of marijuana for migraines. Love living in Oregon. All right, our next patient is a 64-year-old man with hypertension and elevated lipids, and he's coming in to discuss chest pain. It occurs about once a week when he's walking to the park to pick up his grandson from soccer practice, and the pain goes away with resting uh, after a couple of minutes, and it doesn't happen every time. So his medications, he's on lisinopril and atorvastatin. His blood pressure is generally well controlled. He has an EKG in your office that shows normal sinus rhythm, with T-wave inversions in V3 through V6. That sets off a little bit of an alarm bell with the symptoms. And you say, well, let's go ahead and get a stress EKG. He gets a stress EKG and that reveals one and a half to two millimeters of ST depression in those same leads at seven minutes. And that correlates to the patient's chest discomfort. So what next? Well, we think about revascularization in this person. And the question I bring up is, does that revascularization reduce major cardiovascular events in patients experiencing chronic stable angina? So several studies we know show that revascularization makes a difference in the acute setting. So unstable angina, acute MI, left main coronary, if you uh, uh, revascularize, you improve outcomes, especially mortality. So what about in the long term? So our first study looking at this uh, was the COURAGE trial 
back in the early 2000s. They took 2,300 patients with chronic myocardial ischemia, randomized them to get intervention plus optical med optimal medical therapy versus opti optimal medical therapy alone, or OMT. They found in that study no difference in death, MI, stroke, or acute coronary syndromes at almost five years out. And then when they followed these patients 15 years out, once again, there was no overall difference between the groups. An analysis of randomized trials of PCI in patients with uh, chronic stable angina uh, looked at 5,300 patients in five randomized trials. And at five years follow-up, once again, PCI had no effects on death, non-fatal MI, unplanned revascularization, or angina. Here's a look at that graphically for mortality. You can see that um, on this forest plot, mortality is not improved at all with uh, intervention. And uh, this is for uh, MI. And there was actually a trend towards increased MI, mainly from periprocedural MIs from the uh, PCI. And so the question comes up, are, is there anything new out there that we should know about looking at revascularization uh, versus optimal medical therapy for ischemic heart disease? And this study came out at the end of 2018. It's called the Ischemia Trial. You probably heard of it. It looked at 5,000 patients who had a cardiac stress test showing moderate to severe ischemia, and they were randomized to get a procedure plus optimal medical therapy versus optimal medical therapy alone. Their primary endpoint was MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events, and their secondary endpoints were quality of life, cardiovascular death, or MI. They included people who had ischemia as shown by an ETT, nuclear stress, stress echo, or cardiac MRI. And they excluded patients who were particularly ill, especially with uh, bad heart failure, severe angina, um, and uh, kidney disease. And then importantly, anyone with uh, significant left main disease. However, they did things differently from the old studies. So in the prior trials, they always took a picture of the patient's coronary anatomy and then randomized people into groups and they took out anybody with severe disease and so they were essentially looking at people with ischemia or chronic angina who had mild uh, disease and in this one they wanted to first randomize people and then do the catheterization and so that's exactly what they did um, so they uh, looked at patients through a coronary artery uh, 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 or a, a coronary CTA. And uh, what they found was that a pretty uh, fair number of people had uh, vessel disease. About half of these people had three vessel disease with 87% of them having left anterior uh, uh, LAD lesions, sorry. And then about 1% of them had uh, left main disease and those patients were excluded from the study. So back to the design, the uh, 5,100 patients were randomized. Most of them were men. Um, and uh, in the invasive strategy, 96% of them uh, underwent a cath, and 80% of those people underwent some form of procedure. 
And then for the optimal medical therapy group, 28% of them ended up crossing over and getting a cath, and a total of 23% got some kind of procedure. So there was some crossover, but it wasn't enormous. And so what were the main results? The outcomes you can see here, and you can look over to the far right, the p-values, there were no significant differences between the invasive strategy and optimal medical therapy. Uh, there were slight trends in favor of invasive, but really nothing to hang your hat on. Here's a subgroup analysis by forest plot, and all you have to do is squint your eyes, and you can see that there's no particular subgroup that did particularly well or poorly with in invasive intervention. Uh, I wasn't meaning to have you look at any of the details on this slide. So does revascularization improve secondary outcomes? What about angina? A lot of our patients are uh, uh, experiencing a lot of chest discomfort. So if you look back at the COURAGE trial, there was a difference uh, seen with angina. So at the three-month mark, for example, about half of patients were angina-free compared to 40% of patients in the medical therapy group. So there was a difference. It wasn't giant, but less people were having angina on the medication. And then after about two years, the angina benefit basically disappeared uh, from, those, uh, from that trial. And uh, here's a look at that meta-analysis I showed you. And overall, they found uh, little to no difference with angina in the uh, trials listed there. And then here's the uh, ischemia trial, the most recent one. And it took me a long time staring at these diagrams to figure out what in the world they were talking about. And so basically, they're dividing it up into anginal frequency going into the trial. And if people had daily angina, at three months uh, go, uh, post uh, intervention, they did better. There more, were more people who were angina free uh, with intervention than not. And that was true for people with weekly angina. And then monthly angina, there was less of a difference, especially out at three years, uh, as we saw in the earlier trials. So there does appear to be some impact on angina. Here's medication use from the trial. And as you can see here, People were using less anti-anginal medication if they had PCI done or a, a bypass, uh, but they were taking more, especially initially, dual antiplatelet uh, therapy. So kind of a trade-off. So a question that comes up is, so you did a procedure and then afterwards patients said they felt better. Was there some placebo effect to that or was this a real finding? So there was a really cool study that they did uh, published back in 2018 called the Orbita trial, 200 patients uh, with chronic stable angina and single vessel disease uh, were uh, then randomized to get PCI with a drug-eluting stent or fake PCI. They underwent the procedure, but they didn't do anything once they were, uh, once they cathed the person. And what did they find in that one? Uh, they looked at exercise time and angina score and what were the clinically important differences? None. They didn't see any differences in angina scores or ability to walk on a treadmill, uh, suggesting that perhaps there was a strong placebo effect to these procedures. Major bleeding did occur in uh, both the groups. All right, so I bring the question to you, what is the number one source of low value Medicare spending in the United States? 
And as you might imagine, the direction I'm going, stress testing for stable coronary artery disease uh, is considered the biggest cost waste in the United States uh, from medical spending uh, at $1.6 billion per year. How does this relate to Oregon? This was from the uh, OHA uh, from July of last year, and they point out that we are spending about $20 million uh, uh, in excess on annual cardiac screens in low-risk individuals. And overall, the trends seem to be on an uptick. There's roughly a million of these cardiac caths being done uh, each year for non-urgent events, and those numbers appear to be increasing. So my clinical bottom lines on this, a procedural approach to stable coronary artery disease with moderate to severe ischemia doesn't reduce mortality. It doesn't reduce cardiovascular events. Optimizing medical therapy for symptom control should always be first line in these patients with chronic angina. And patients who have truly refractory angina uh, with daily or perhaps weekly symptoms should be considered for invasive approaches. All right, our next patient. 68-year-old man with stable coronary disease. He's taking aspirin, atorvastatin, lisinopril, metoprolol, all the good stuff. He comes in for follow-up. His blood pressure and lipids are under good control. And he asks, hey doc, is there anything else that you have for me to prevent cardiovascular events? So this is a, a sort of an interesting, you know, something we've known for a long time that inflammation appears to play a real key role in atherogenesis. And there have been several recent trials that have looked at uh, inflammatory markers to lessen cardiac events. The first of those big trials was one uh, involving canakinumab uh, for uh, cardiovascular risk reduction, the CANTOS trial. They looked at 10,000 patients with prior MI and elevated CRP levels, and they randomized them to get this monoclonal antibody uh, that targeted IL-6 uh, versus placebo to try and reduce inflammation and events. What they found that was that patients taking canakinumab had reductions in uh, major cardiovascular events at four years compared to placebo, uh, about a 15% overall reduction with the number needed to treat of 56 over those four years. All good, right? Uh, however, more patients on canakinumab developed fatal infections or sepsis from being on the medication. And so that one kind of fell flat uh, based on that uh, additional information. This was a, a, a medication that's very similar to the canakinumab called extortionata uh, or levgibrokimab. I just saw that recently in uh, uh, actually advertised on television. All right. The next drug they tried was methotrexate. Methotrexate I think of as kind of a toxic medicine that I don't like to have my patients on. And they said, yeah, why not? Let's take 5,000 patients who with coronary disease and diabetes or metabolic syndrome and randomize them to get once weekly methotrexate or placebo. They looked at cardiovascular events. They followed people for uh, just about two years and they didn't see any difference in outcomes. Uh, other than they gave people uh, elevated transaminases and 
drop their white counts and stuff like that. So methotrexate, probably not. So this is your spring question or almost spring question, name the flower. Of course, this is uh, for those of you into gardening, this is a crocus flower, one of the earliest blooms of spring. And what medication do we get from that? We get colchicine from the crocus flower. So colchicine is a potent oral anti-inflammatory. It's used in rheumatologic conditions like gout and RA, pericarditis. They've uh, looked at, recently they've looked at a few trials uh, to see if we can prevent uh, people at high risk from having cardiovascular events. And so those three trials we'll look at are called the LODOCO, the Colcott, and the LODOCO-2. So the LODOCO stands for low-dose colchicine, kind of kind of hip and cool. They looked at a very small number of patients, 532 patients who had stable coronary disease. They were randomized to get colchicine or nothing at all. So there was no placebo. They uh, looked at the outcomes uh, shown there and they followed these patient, patients for uh, three years on average. Most of these patients were taking uh, dual antiplatelets and or statin. And what they found was being on low-dose colchicine lowered risks for the primary uh, event rate. And most of that was driven by the reduction in acute coronary syndromes, uh, so MI specifically. So a reduction, a small trial. Let's see if there's more information on this. So this was a, that was an Australian and Netherlands study. This is a Canadian study. Both of these, by the way, are funded by their national health uh, organizations. And so no real financial interests, no drug interests. And so the Colcott trial looked at almost 5,000 patients who had had a recent MI and these patients were randomized to get colchicine or placebo. They looked at all the important cardiovascular events and they followed them for just short of two years. And what did they see? Once again, they saw a difference. So there was a 1.6% absolute difference in event rates corresponding to a number needed to treat of about 63 in just under two years to prevent one major event. Most of those events that were occurring were either stroke or revascularization, unplanned revascularization. And so that seemed to be where the benefit lie. And that brings us to the low-dose colchicine 2 trial. This one enrolled 5,500 patients with stable coronary disease uh, and randomized them to colchicine or placebo. Same outcomes, follow-up at uh, about two and a half years. And once again, they saw a difference, this time even more impressive uh, with a uh, number needed to treat of 36 uh, over the couple two and a half year period. So thus far looking pretty promising. Any adverse events from colchicine? Yeah, there were. Uh, so we all know of colchicine. We used to write prescriptions for this. If, you're, if you've been around long enough, titrate to effect on your gout or when you started having explosive diarrhea. So in the Lodoco 1 trial, there was no placebo, but 11% of the folks uh, withdrew in that study due to GI intolerance. In the Colcott trial, interestingly, adverse events did not differ from the placebo, including diarrhea, but there was a little signal of pneumonia in that trial. And then in the Lodoco 2, 
they had a run-in phase, uh, no, well, maybe a pun intended, where you were, you, they saw if you could tolerate the medication and uh, about 15% of the people said, no, I don't want to be on the medicine. And roughly half of those said uh, GI intolerance was the reason for that. So expect some patients, if you're going to try this medication, to have some GI upset, uh, but that tended to be overall pretty mild. One of the uh, caveats that I was not happy about in these three trials is they really didn't include women. Uh, this seems to be an ongoing theme and just shouldn't be existing in this day and age, uh, but under 20% of folks were uh, included. And then here's a meta-analysis of five randomized trials of colchicine that was just published uh, last month. And uh, it shows overall a significant reduction in MACE with uh, treatment with colchicine low dose with a number needed to treat of 33 over uh, anywhere from six to 36 months. And then if you look at the adverse events, you can see they're circled. There was no significant difference in any of the adverse uh, events including the GI stuff. There was a little signal towards increased non-cardiovascular death, but it's not statistically significant, just something to keep an eye on. Colchicine, the, the cost uh, compared to canakinumab obviously is quite, quite a bargain. Um, it used to be pennies, uh, now it's in the dollars, uh, but the costs seem to be coming down pretty steadily. And uh, last year, this was $62, so uh, for some reason, drug costs are coming down. All right, my bottom line on this, inflammation appears to play an important role in heart disease. And I think it's time to think about daily oral colchicine. Uh, just like we thought about aspirin in the past, we should think about colchicine uh, as a, a reasonable addition to uh, guideline approved therapy for heart disease. All right. Just a couple more patients to get through. We'll try and uh, wind this down pretty quick. So we've got a 54-year-old man with a recent MI and hypertension, and he's got those lipids. Uh, total cholesterol 290, LDL of 190. I don't think anyone in the audience is just saying, oh, that looks good. Uh, so what do we want to do? We put him on a Torvastatin 80, and his lipids change significantly, but his LDL is still 130. Yuck. That seems too high for somebody who has a recent MI. Uh, so the question is, what else can you do? So despite statin therapy, greater than 60% of high-risk patients still go on to have a cardiovascular event. The ACC AHA guidelines now recommend uh, that uh, you should institute maximally tolerated statins to try and achieve a greater than 50% reduction in LDL. And then when should you consider therapies beyond and which agents should you choose? This has been a little bit of a moving target, but they've become a lot more liberal saying when your LDL targets aren't quite getting there, and now they're saying less than 70 or you know we may go down much farther than that, think about these three drug classes, azetamibe, bile acid sequestrants, which I don't know anybody using regularly, and then PCSK9 inhibitors. So azetamibe, I'm just going to mention uh, quickly, it inhibits intestinal cholesterol absorption. The big trial there was called the IMPROVE-IT trial, 18,000 patients randomized to get that on top of a statin. 
uh, versus placebo. And there was a significant reduction in MACE with a number to need, needed to trade of 50 over six years. And at a cost of $9 per month, this is a really quite reasonable add-on therapy to statins. Um, PCSK9 inhibitors are the other sort of new kids on the block. That's uh, PCSK9 is a protein responsible for removal of LDL receptors from the cell surface and hepatocytes. And if you block PCSK9, the receptors stay on the surface and scavenge more and more LDL, dropping your levels. There you can see uh, doses of these medications, uh, subcutaneous, reducing LDL cholesterol by roughly half. And in terms of outcome studies, the four-year trial looked at 27,000 patients in randomized fashion and showed a number needed to treat of 67 over two years. And then the Odyssey trial looked at 19,000 patients with alirocumab, showing similar significant reductions in major cardiovascular events listed there. So both powerful agents. Uh, I think I saw a new one of these coming out that was advertised on TV just before leaving this morning. And that one was called Armandaleg. Uh, Penilesumab, I think is the, the generic, uh, lower your LDL. Uh, and your retirement income. So I allude to the cost of these medications. Here's these PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, about $500 if you're lucky per month. Uh, yeah, crazy amounts. So brings up the question, who sets the pricing on these drugs? And I finally found a behind the scenes look at the folks who set all the drug pricing. There they are. All right, so how much would it cost to prevent one cardiovascular event by using a PCSK9 inhibitor uh, in addition to statin therapy? And the answer to that was uh, almost a million dollars to prevent one event over several years. Uh, so really uh, exorbitant. All right, any new drugs that we should know about that are targeting lipids? And the answer to that is yes, there's a bunch coming out a very interesting one. So benfidoic acid is the first one to talk about. It's a novel oral drug that blocks cholesterol synthesis at an upstream site from the statins at a place called the ATP citrate lyase uh, enzyme. And so these ACL inhibitors uh, were tested in a randomized trial and showed that with addition, in addition to a statin, there was a reduction, a further reduction in 16 of 16.5% in LDL without any adverse events. The FDA looked at that and said, we're gonna approve it, even though it hasn't been looked at in terms of clinical outcomes. And there is a cardiovascular outcome study called CLEAR that will be due out in 2022. So I'm looking forward to seeing that and hoping that works. Fish oil, um, just a brief word on fish oil, that's not new. Meta-analysis of randomized trials of fish oil have showed really uh, disappointing effects. Uh, so fish oil in general uh, contain, contains two components, the uh, EPA and the DHA components. And there's a lot of interest in the EPA component because it lowers triglycerides and doesn't affect LDL and HDL whereas the DHA component tends to raise both of those entities. And so there have been studies looking at just EPA, 
So here's a study of EPA plus statin, and they found in that one a reduction in cardiovascular events, pretty high number needed to treat over uh, four and a half years, um, but nevertheless, uh, at least the proof of concept that this EPA works. And then they uh, came up with a purified version and studied this uh, not too long ago, at the end of 2019. Uh, that was called the, this was called the Reduce It trial using uh, this uh, drug called icosapent ethyl. And I want you to really uh, get that one in your brain, icosapent ethyl. So it's a purified version of this EPA. And when added to statin, there was a huge reduction in major cardiovascular events. A number needed to treat of 20 over five years uh, to prevent a major event. The main critique of this study, and this was bizarre, is they use mineral oil as their placebo. And as we later found out, mineral oil actually raises your inflammation, your CRP levels go up, and LDL was raised seven points in the placebo group uh, on, on this mineral oil placebo. The uh, FDA approved this drug in 2019 for people with triglycerides greater than 150, so pretty low bar set uh, if you wanna use it. And the main limitation at this point is still uh, in the world of cost. So generic fish oil, which doesn't work, costs four bucks. Uh, prescription fish oil, a little more expensive, still doesn't work. And then icosapent ethyl, which appears to work really well, but unfortunately a bit more costly. So uh, again, the question, what is the cost to prevent one major event based on the icosapent ethyl study uh, over a five-year period? And uh, it's a lot of money to prevent a single cardiovascular event. All right, Inclisiran is a new drug. It's a twice-yearly injectable that blocks messenger RNA transcription of PCSK9. They've done three trials, all of them showing about a 50% reduction in LDL uh, and no significant adverse events. And so this is uh, a yet another interesting medicine coming our way. And the Orion 4 trial is expected out in 2024 with cardiovascular outcomes. Let's look at the, uh, excuse me, look, look at the cost of these medications. Um, so you can see the ridiculous costs of all of them. In Clizaran, they haven't come up with drug pricing, but I'm guessing it's gonna look something like this. You just bring your uh, chest of gold to the pharmacy and they'll exchange it. All right, and then finally in this realm, there um, we'll go to the future and can a vaccine reduce cardiovascular events? Vaccines have been in the news lately, but this one I find particularly intriguing. And so researchers are studying a vaccine that targets PCSK9. And uh, what they found in their preliminary studies is significant decreases in total and LDL cholesterol at one year involving uh, macaque monkeys and mice. And so this may be heading our way not too far off. So clinical bottom lines, when you need additional lipid lowering therapy beyond statins in high risk patients, think about azetamide. There are a few other agents that are coming our way that lower major cardiovascular events and are primarily limited by their costs. And then be on the lookout for this Inclisiran and perhaps the PCSK9 vaccine. And then I really, really think we should leave all the fish alone. Stop making these barrels of fish oil 
and uh, just make the icosapen ethyl in laboratory. All right, our last patient is kind of a fun one, so stick with me here and we'll end it up on this. We've got a 68-year-old man seen in the emergency department for right-sided flank pains and hematuria, and lo and behold, he has a seven millimeter ureteral stone without hydronephrosis. Nephrolithiasis is caused for about a million emergency visits every year. So are there medications that help facilitate stone passage? Yes, there are. And mainly we're thinking about alpha blockers. Uh, so there have been multiple trials of alpha blockers uh, like tamsulosin that show increased stone uh, 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 expulsion and a shorter time until that stone is released, uh, especially effective for a passage of large stones and use of these medicines decreases pain medicines and hospital days. So alpha blockers, I think you already knew that. Um, this patient was tried on tamsulosin and uh, was having frequent episodes of lightheadedness and so stopped the medication, continued to have renal colic attacks. What medicine is best for renal colic? So they looked at NSAIDs versus opioids. And as you might imagine, what were the clinically important differences? There were none really. Uh, the two were equivalent for pain uh, control overall. People taking NSAIDs had less rescue doses needed for pain. And there were a greater number of adverse events with opioids. So still on my soapbox trying to get people to use less opioids. All right. The fun part, are there any non-pharmacologic interventions that we should, thinking, we should be thinking about in patients with kidney stones? So here was a proof of concept study. They uh, found three renal calculi from patients. Uh, you can see the sizes there. And these were placed into the upper, middle, and lower calices of a urine-filled renal model. And here's what that looked like. And so they put these stones within these little uh, areas within this urine fill. They, the researcher filled it with their own urine and put the stones in there. And then they took this uh, pilocalocele model and placed it into physiologic position within a backpack and strapped it into the seat of a roller coaster, specifically Big Thunder Mountain Railroad at Disney World. Here's the placement of the uh, backpack. So in uh, the different rides, they mainly rode in the front or in the back section. They uh, overall analyzed 60 renal calculi rides. 45% of all roller coaster rides resulted in stone passage with posterior seating having the best uh, success. Side note, these guys figured out a way to get their research funds to pay for a trip to Disney World, which I think is pretty awesome. So what about other forms of physical activity? Here was a study looking at 75 patients with distal ureteral stones. They were randomly assigned to one of three groups. They were either told to have sexual intercourse three to four times per week, tamsulosin 0.4 milligrams daily, or stick on their usual medical therapy. And they looked at stone passage rates at two weeks. And here was the outcome, 84% of people uh, in the sexual intercourse group passed their stone uh, by two weeks with mean passage time 10 days. And you can see the decreasing uh, efficacy of tamsulosin and the control. Uh, so pretty impressive. That was one study. Here's a meta-analysis of three trials looking at the same thing. 
showing expulsion of stone with sexual intercourse at two weeks uh, was much greater uh, with regular sex uh, with an odds ratio of 6.61. So my bottom lines here, alpha blockers improve, improve rates of stone passage, NSAIDs are superior to opioids for renal colic pain, and a romantic weekend getaway involving a trip to an amusement park may facilitate passage of renal stones. All right, and they did Big Thunder Mountain. I can only imagine what would happen here. Okay, that is my presentation. I want to end uh, semi on time. And so uh, let's go forward and uh, see if there's any questions out there from the audience. I want to thank you again for inviting me to the Grand Rounds and uh, hope you, hopefully you've taken away at least one learning point from this morning's session. All right, thanks guys. Great, thanks so much, Dr. Mencken. I think we've definitely taken away some good learning points and also just a shout out here. Thanks for the humor, um, particularly those drug names. Uh, you've gotta be kidding. Uh, so a couple of questions here, and mostly returning to the section on cardiovascular disease and inflammation. Yep. Uh, one uh, person wondered your opinion, any role for use of turmeric um, as an sort of known anti-inflammatory? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I don't know the literature on turmeric, unfortunately. I know that there's a lot of interest in that. Uh, if you want to shoot me an email, I can look into the uh, literature on that and we can have a, a little discourse. I, I know a lot more people are using turmeric uh, for various things like joint pains and just decreased inflammation. I think that's a, a really interesting idea. Unfortunately, I don't have uh, the, the knowledge on that one. Great, thanks. We uh, don't expect you to have it all at your fingertips. <laughs> Um, also, just uh, a comment here um, and question from one of our infectious disease specialists. Um, overall, you know, having an eye toward concern of infections with the increasing use of MABs in various domains, um, let alone the cost. Of course, for the one medication, you cited the trade-off with regard to increased mortality from sepsis. In general, um, as you're seeing use of these medications um, in the studies or in practice, is there screening going on for things like quant gold or chronic fungal infections? And generally speaking, are, are infection harms studied? Yeah, that's a great question. And so they're certainly being studied in the initial trials. Uh, there have been signals uh, for, and you know, this is generalizing. There are a lot of MABs out there, so I, I can't you know, over overstate, um, but there's certainly some signals of uh, risk for infection. In the studies, they're especially careful at screening people. And so we're not seeing a lot of events. And then what becomes interesting is the post-marketing surveillance. So the studies are so carefully done that we oftentimes don't see these signals. And then later on with, you know, millions of drugs uh, being uh, prescribed or, or million, millions of prescriptions, that's where we actually see the true effects. And so in uh, my clinical experience, I've seen a, a small handful of new infections, a reactivation of TB uh, when someone was started on a MAB for their rheumatoid arthritis, that type of thing. Uh, I think most physicians who are prescribing the MABs are being uh, uh, reasonably cautious, uh, but yeah, that's always a concern. 
and uh, I guess it gives job security to the ID folks out there. Great, thanks for your thoughts on that. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left. Um, it is really fascinating to see which medications and treatments get traction. Um, you seem fairly impressed with the colchicine results. Um, you also, of course, note the obvious difference in cost. Um, any, are you seeing colchicine used? Is it getting any traction with the cardiology community? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? I, I was uh, speaking b before I uh, uh, gave this talk, I was uh, asking one of the cardiologists here at uh, Good Sam, Jack McAnulty, what do you think of colchicine? And he said that he's uh, becoming a believer and he's starting a few patients on colchicine. Uh, I, uh, that's, that's hearsay, but that's what he told me. Uh, so I have yet to give my first colchicine prescription but I am thinking very seriously about it. The problem right right now is we have studies that go out to just three years um, that are showing some benefit. There is a cost associated. God knows how the, the cost went from, you know, $0 up again to $32 a month, um, but that's that's not nothing. And so we have to think about that. Um, so, and, and there is a little bit of intolerance uh, for some patients. So I, have a just general approach, which is I never want to be the absolute first person prescribing a medication, and I don't want to be the last one doing it either. I want to fit somewhere in between in the middle, usually maybe toward the early part of the middle where I'm going to start feeling comfortable putting people on colchicine. Uh, I'm I'm kind of on the fence right now just because of the, the limited numbers of studies and the limited follow-up, but I'm certainly interested and if you do have someone who's particularly high risk, it would be reasonable. Yeah, great. Thanks for planting that seed. We are almost at the hour. I'm going to ask just one last question for your sure. general thoughts. And as you finish that, we'll we'll let you sign off. Um, really appreciate the review um, with regard to um, medication therapy versus an invasive approach um, for coronary disease. I think you know for our patients. Um, let alone the physicians, there is this tension uh, of, of the, the benefit when an event uh, has happened, right? And feeling like really um, we can just treat medically and watch this. Have you found any useful um, talking points specifically with patients, you know, as a primary care physician and often kind of a bit of a gatekeeper with regard to yeah. referral or messaging? of expectations. Um, any tips for talking to patients about this? Yeah, that, that's a really tough one. So I, I think we've seen a huge paradigm shift. When I did training in the uh, early 90s, anyone who said chest and pain in the same sentence was uh, you know, on the cath table and getting interventions. And the more we're discovering uh, over time with these studies, we realize that you don't get a great benefit from those major interventions. There's a huge cost associated with it. There's, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, an incentive for people who are interventionalists to do these procedures. So I just have a, a frank talk with my patients and say, here's what we know. Um, a lot of them feel insecure not seeing a cardiologist, so I certainly will refer them to a cardiologist. There are cardiologists out there who tend to be more aggressive and there's cardiologists out there who tend to have a more measured approach. And so I tend to 
utilize my colleagues who are a little bit more conservative in this realm and aren't as apt to send patients to to uh, catheterization and procedures. Um, yeah, I, I think the message gets out there, but it's usually a decade or so behind the literature. So I think we're seeing at least some of the impact of the COURAGE trial now and the ischemia trial just lends further credence to that idea that you don't have to do procedures in order to maintain people's cardiovascular health. Great. Well, thanks again so much for the talk today, for your careful review of the literature, for your humor, for your practical tips and pearls. Um, also for at risk, putting your email up there on the last slide. So um, oh, please, please send me emails. Um, yeah. Feel free to pursue. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, Lenny, Dr. Mankin. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it.